are continuing in our book uh, through the book of Acts. And so I'm going to ask you to jump straight to Acts chapter 11. We're going to get reading. I'm not going to give a summary because the passage this morning gives a really good summary of the last two weeks of where we've been. So if you are new year, we're busy preaching through the book of Acts. We're working through it every single verse, verse by verse. And um, I'm going to jump around a bit in the passage this morning just for um, uh, create a, uh, a bit of expectation of it. So I'm going to start at verse 4 in chapter 11. And so we're looking at Peter, and we're looking at a bit of what Peter's recent travels have done. So let's go. Uh, Acts 11, verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order. He's, he's just come back to Jerusalem. And he's speaking to the church. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. This is what he did. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirits told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, he's got six people who came with him, they also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. This was Cornelius' house, if you remember the story before. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I just want to pause there for a moment. Imagine, just for a moment, imagine you're Peter in this scenario, in this story. Imagine you've just gone on this trip out to Joppa and then to Caesarea, and now you've just come back to Jerusalem, back to your home, to your home church. You come back to your, your, your friends, and um, you've, you've, you've just come back from healing um, a guy by the name of Aeneas, who was paralyzed for eight years. You prayed for him, and now he's walking. That's a miracle. You then prayed for this lady, Tabitha, who was dead, and now she's alive again. She, you, you, by God's grace, raised her back to, to life. You then have this incredible vision from God that happens three times with these animals and God saying, kill and eat Peter. You then hear about how this angel tells this Roman centurion, Cornelius, how to find you in Joppa or in Caesarea where you are or in, in Joppa where you are and he calls you to come. You then come to this home that's full of Gentiles, full of these non-Jews. While you're telling them about Jesus, while you're telling them about his ministry, his death, his resurrection and salvation in him. 
You see, while you're preaching, the, the power of the Spirit just fills the whole room. This is something you get to witness. And then after this incredible trip, you arrive home, back to Jerusalem, to the church, to your friends. And that church has experienced their own miracles of their own. And you're so keen to tell them about the amazing things that you've got to be a part of, the things you've got to witness, the things you've got to see. What would you expect the response of that church would be when you come back? Imagine as you're coming back, you must be thinking, man, they're going to have such anticipation to hear what I did. There's going to be such excitement. There's going to be um, such encouragement. There might even be a banner that says, welcome home, Peter. You've been away. We've heard some really cool things of what you've done in Joppa and Caesarea. It's so good to have you back. There might be this warm welcome. Well, no, it's not warm at all. After all that Peter experiences and all the things that he does, their response is this. Hello, Peter. We heard you ate food with Gentiles. You ate food with those who we consider unclean, non-Jews. How could you do that, Peter? All this testimony awaits, but the first thing they focus on is that Peter ate food with a bunch of Gentiles. We read that in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 11. I deliberately skipped it for that reason. Look what it says in the first three verses of that chapter. It says, Now the apostles and their brothers uh, who, were, uh, who were throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So they already knew what Peter was coming back with, right? So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How harsh is that? Now the Gentiles, you might be wondering, why, why are they so upset? Why are they so critical? What's, what's, what's wrong here? Well, the Gentiles were not accepted by the Jews because Gentiles who were non-Jews were considered unclean, especially around the freedom they had with eating foods. They would eat a whole lot of foods that the Jews would consider unclean. That's why you shouldn't be in their home, because their home becomes unclean because of what they've eaten. That is why God used that vision for Peter for a couple of reasons. That vision with all these animals, and he says, Lord, I, I can't kill and eat. That's unclean. That's what the Gentiles would do. And God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. What Jesus has done is that he has fulfilled Old Testament law. He's overcome the law. He's overcome that mosaic expectations of what you should and shouldn't do. And he says, actually, I've made now clean what you call unclean, which means the animals are clean, which means the Gentiles are clean, which means you can actually go to their home. You can meet with them. You can be with them. God has made it clean. Imagine you coming home to that church in Jerusalem. How would you feel? If you were Peter, how would you feel if that was your welcome? Let me, let me give you a bit of a, a silly example, maybe just to make it something we can relate to. If you've ever made a cake, I don't know if any of you bake. If you've never made a cake, this will probably apply more to you if you ever do. Because imagine you say, I'm going to try and make a cake, right? And you toil away, you get these ingredients, and you try something you've never done. You follow it and you make it amazing. You put all these toppings on top and then lo and behold, after hours of, 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 of just slave labor, you've produced this three-tiered cake. That's beautifully done. Nothing's burnt. It's all there. It looks fantastic. And your, 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 your anticipation is to show your family what you've produced. And so you call them, family, come look. Come look what I've produced. It's taken me hours. But this is for us to enjoy. Look at this cake. And they look and they say, oh, well done. That's so amazing. But then they look behind you. Oh my gosh, what a mess. 
You did this in the kitchen? Who's going to clean up this mess? Who's going to clean the counter? And all the flour on the floor, and there's an eggshell on the roof. And like, how, how could you? Like, no, I'll, I'll do it. But look at the cake. Yeah, yeah, we see the cake. But look at the mess. You made a mess. How would you feel in that moment when you're thinking, I've done so much good, but you're concerned about the little mess that I've made in the background? For our students out there, if you've ever got 90% for a test, I've never got that. Well done if you have. But have you ever had it when you're so chuffed and your loved ones say to you, well done on 90%, but what did you get wrong? What was the 10% you missed? Oh, you should have got that right. We went over that together. You're like, yeah, yeah, but can you see the 90 that I got right? Not the 10 I got wrong. Well, Peter must have felt like that. Like, sure, guys, you're so caught up by the small things. You're forgetting the big picture here. You've lost the big picture. Fortunately, this was only their initial response. Because when Peter says, wait, and this shows Peter's maturity, he doesn't freak out at the church and say, come on, Oaks. He's calm. He says, whoa, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you the story, detail by detail, what exactly happened. And after he tells him, there's this miracle that happens with the church in Jerusalem. There's a change of heart. Their attitude changes, and we see that in the last verse for this morning. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Their hearts are changed. There's a miracle. And so I want to I look at a few points that might encourage us as a church today, something that the church back then did, got wrong, and responded well to, and maybe we can just see how we can continue growing as a church. So firstly, we see that there's this criticism and cultural objection that is there in the church. We see that just as Jesus promised, the church is growing throughout all regions, it's now going to everybody. It's now even going out to the Gentiles, like I said, to the non-Jews. Now, as far as we know, up until this point in the book of Acts, no non-Jew has received the gospel. No Gentile has heard or responded to the gospel. You might think about what about the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, because he was traveling up to Jerusalem, the thought is that he would be called a proselyte. A proselyte is one who's converted to Judaism. So he was a Jew, a converted Jew, but now Cornelius, this Gentile, would have been probably the first Gentile and his whole household, the first Gentiles to have responded to the gospel. So this is going to shake the church a bit. The news of the gospel has been preached to, to, to even now the Gentiles, and it's going to shake them. The problem with the church was that their focus was not on the breakthrough of the gospel into the Gentile community, but they were more concerned on the well-established cultural differences that they've lived with for generations. And in fact, we could call them deep-rooted prejudices. They've got this deep-rooted prejudice in them. You'll see even Paul, who preaches happily to the Gentiles, he even challenges in his letters, don't be like the Gentiles who live unruly and live uh, not in honor of God and live wildly. Paul will write about the Gentiles that way. There's this deep-rooted prejudice in the Jews to not be like a Gentile, to not be unclean like them. So they, they've got this deep-rooted prejudice, this um, um, cultural belief that is right in their hearts that causes them to not see the bigger picture. Now, now here's the problem, because they're so caught up in their prejudice, they're missing the promises God's been making for thousands of years. I want to look at 
um, a passage Paul writes in Romans 15. Paul says this, as it is written, therefore, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said in the Old Testament, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, in the Old Testament, it says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And then again, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet thousands of years before, said this, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now they've heard this, but yet this prejudice blinds them from the bigger picture of what God is doing. See, God's plan of salvation, his gospel has always been for all people. And now he's making that plan clear. He says to Peter, you need to break this stereotype, this prejudice in your heart. So he gives him that vision. Even when Peter gets to Cornelius' house, he says, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be in your home with all of you unclean people. But then he realizes, wait a minute, God's vision, the spirit told me to go, the angel told me to come. God is telling me something. Something has to change in our hearts. He goes back to Jerusalem and their first response is, how dare you eat with unclean people? Whoa, God is doing something. And then all of a sudden you take the prejudice away, you put it aside and you see the far bigger picture of what God's been saying from the beginning and you realize actually something has changed. I want to I bring a caution to us as the church here in the year 2022. The caution is that we do not turn the gospel into something that it, it isn't. And if you look around the world today, you'll see how the gospel is used for the wrong reasons in so many ways. Right now in America, there's a big argument how the gospel should be used for nationalism. That you promote your nation by the gospel. The gospel is what makes our nation the nation it needs to be. And you're using Jesus as a political figure to promote your, your, your political interest. The gospel is not intended for nationalism or to promote a nation. The gospel should not be used for political reasons. The gospel should not be used for legalism to make people better or to bring a morality or a law that's over people. Because all you're doing then is following um, written letter. You're following something of an expression and nothing of the heart. We need to be careful that we don't use it. We, don't, we need to be careful we don't turn away from the gospel completely and focus on other things such as culture, such as nationality. And we need to be aware of that. What we need to be aware of is that the gospel is far more beautiful. And we can't allow the dangers, the sins, and the movements of the world to enter into God's kingdom. We can't allow stereotypes or xenophobia we can't allow hierarchy or racism. We can't allow entitlement into the church. Those are things of man. Those are things that man will even try and justify and say it's right, and they'll use the gospel to convince it. Apartheid use some gospel elements to make it happen, right? Nazi Germany would have used some of the gospel to promote it. Slavery was built of something of the Bible, but all they're doing is they're taking snippets, and we as the church, and you say, no, no prejudice. No stereotype, no hatred, no inequality. None of that is welcomed. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of far greater values than the values of this world. And we need to make sure that the truth will um, uh, protrude right through anything that we hold on to. There's a word that came this morning from some of the guys preaching across the site that 
our prejudices can also come out of an unforgiveness that we're holding out of past hurts. So perhaps some of us, we've been hurt before from people, maybe a person, maybe a type of person, maybe a, a, a cultural group, maybe a racial group. And out of that, there's this, this prejudice towards others that holds us from welcoming the gospel to all people. And there's this unforgiveness that lies within us. We hold grudges. Imagine if that was the case towards Paul. Paul who persecuted the church, who sent Christians to prison. And now the church is supposed to welcome him? Now the church is supposed to send him and now they're going to accept his letters as, 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 as New Testament God-given word? They had to overcome an unforgiveness, a grudge, a prejudice. And they did by God's grace, but we too need to check our hearts sometimes and say, Lord, is there any prejudice in me? Is there any unforgiveness in me that presents, prevents me from loving all around me? Or do I just love a, a, a certain type of, of person? We need to trust God in the power of his grace for all people. And that we would be able to love and forgive all people. And then there's an important reminder for us too, that we do not set the bar higher than, um, than we should. That we don't build artificial qualifications for what it would mean to belong to God's kingdom. We don't create cultural prejudices, biases, or, 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 or preferences to what it means to belong to God's kingdom. You, you might think that. You might say, in order to be a part of this church, you must dress this way. Or you must belong to this demographic. Or you must change up to this point, then you can come in. If that was the case, none of us would ever come into the church. If we had to say, you know, you, you've got to get your life at least 75% good before you can allow Jesus to do the last 25. Now Jesus says, come, in, come as, as your worst. And church, welcome people in as their worst. We might get people in here and they're going to be at their worst. They might come in here drunk. They might come in here with not the right heart. They might come in here full of sin, full of anger, full of unforgiveness. They might be still so rooted in their sin, but the, God says, church, love them. Bring them in. Walk the journey with them and care for them. We don't say, go sort yourself out first, then join the church. Guys, what are we here for? Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. He came for the sick. And so we need to check and say, are we, do we keep our doors open? Are we warm? Is your home open to people? And Lord, help us with that. In Romans 1.16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile. It's the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. There's no other qualification. It's not by your gender, it's not by your education, none of that. We see in Galatians 3 then, when we come to this place of salvation. Galatians 3, Paul's writing. And he says from verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jump to verse 28. Now, now that we've come to salvation, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no more nationality. There's no more cultural differences. There's neither slave nor free. There's no hierarchy in your wealth or in your position, in your career. 
There's no male or female. There's no dominance that man is greater than woman or woman is greater than man. We're equal. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are all heirs according to promise. Jesus is building a church that's free of prejudice. It's free of um, distinction, hierarchy, national or cultural exclusion. In Christ, all of us are one. Again, that should encourage every single one of us here this morning. That no one here this morning should have any doubt that Jesus calls you and chooses you. No one here this morning should feel in doubt whether God would want to save you, whether God would ask of you to belong to his family. God looks at every single one of us in our differences, in our language differences, in our cultural differences, in our heights, in our sense of humor, in our sense of style, in the things we enjoy, the food we like, in all of it. And God says, I choose you. I save you. He does. You might wonder, well, what qualifies me today to be saved? What qualifies me to be welcomed into the kingdom of God? What qualifies me to be called a son or a daughter of God? Can I tell you, it's not being Jewish and it's no nationality. It's no culture. It's no gender. It's not your success. It's not your good works. It's nothing you have done and it's nothing you ever will do. It simply is this. It's simply that you're accepted by God's grace and God's great love for you. Can I challenge you? I'm challenging us that we don't prejudice others, but perhaps you prejudice yourself. Perhaps you become so harsh on yourself that you convince yourself that God would never accept you, God would never love you, God would never save you or even forgive you. Perhaps you're the one who speaks condemnation over you. Perhaps you think your sin is far too great. God can never forgive me of that. But what we need to do is do exactly what Peter does. Keep applying God's word. And what does God say? God says, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son that whoever believes will be saved. God then says that he's faithful to forgive. If you confess your sins to him, he will be faithful to forgive. So what should you do with that sin that you think is so unforgivable? Go bring it before the Father and say, Lord, this is what I've done. The good news is that he already knows. It's not new news to him. He knows everything you've done. He just needs you to own up and just to ask him to take it away and help you with it. But the word says he's faithful to forgive. He then also says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you belong to Jesus, no one should be able to come and condemn you. Not the devil, but not even you. You shouldn't condemn yourself. So you don't do that. Then he even says, how great is the love the Father has for us, that he would call us sons and daughters. We even heard this morning, it was read, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. So if you're feeling excluded this morning from God's kingdom, perhaps you have a prejudice towards yourself, look what God's word says. Don't listen to the lies that perhaps the enemy gives or even the lies you might bring up. Because of your own prejudices that are there, ask God to free of them for yourself and for others. What saves us is the love of God, demonstrated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, freely saved by grace in love. Call out to him today. Say, Lord, this is what you promise. This is what you say. Take away all my prejudice. Take away my blindness. The next thing I want to look at this morning is just the power of Peter's testimony. In verse 4, it says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. So he tells them what happened. 
The question is, what changes from these critical hearts in the beginning to these worshiping hearts a few minutes later? And the difference is the power of testimony. The power of, 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 of hearing and seeing what God has done. Now, testimony means you might not have been somewhere, but when you hear about it, there's a warmth in your heart. There's, there's a faith that builds up in us. There's a joy that builds in up, us, up in us. And that testimony has power. Last week, we had Mark Pittich come up and share his testimony of his healing. How God, him being in ICU, thinking, Lord, Lord, I might be coming home now. That's a hard place to be in. But God heals him, and then he prays for someone in the bed close to him, and God helps that person miraculously, heals that person miraculously. Now, none of us were there in the ICU with him, but I'll tell you what, our hearts were stirred, weren't they? And there was a faith, and there was a joy, and there was a life, and we had this belief, God, you could do so many good things. That's what testimony does. And in Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, they've conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. A testimony becomes a weapon. It's a weapon that we use to overcome the attack of the enemy. It's a weapon we use to fight. When the enemy tries to come after us, and I want to encourage you, whenever there's a condemnation, whenever there's a challenge that comes over you, that you hold on to your testimony. When the devil looks at you and says, oh, you're such a sinner. Look how you've messed up in your life. Look at how you keep being so full of pride. Look at how you keep not getting it right. You, you just keep sinning, even though you tell Jesus you love him. You might go this often and you might just get angry, because that happens to us. We're still human and we still have this flesh to fight with. And you're like, oh, Jesus, I sang this morning, I got angry. And the devil might say, yeah, you should, you should just stop going to church, really. You don't belong there with those other holy people. And at that moment, you know what you need to do is take out your weapon. Take out your testimony and say, you know what, devil, you're so right. I am wretched. I was wrong and I was broken and I was, I was in darkness. But you know what then? Jesus came along. And Jesus came and said, I love you. And I will save you. And I'll forgive you. And you're right by calling me unrighteous. Because in me, I am so unrighteous. But in Jesus, I am now righteous. And you're right in saying that I could never be accepted into the kingdom of God as I am. Because my clothes are too dirty. You're right. But luckily, I don't go in my clothes. I'm robed in the white and the purity of Jesus Christ. That's your testimony. And you all have one. I think, I think often of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. You know when they stacked slaves horizontally to make sure hundreds could fit in slaves and, and ship them out from Africa to Europe and Africa to South America. And um, most of those men and women would die on that trip. And whoever was alive, you would take them before the buyers and you would sell them. John Newton did that as a living and then he came to know Jesus Christ. But I could just imagine, imagine how he must have been haunted by his past. You know, just the pictures he would have seen, the lives that he would have hurt, the things he was involved with, how his hands would have still been so stained in some ways. But John Newton wrote such a beautiful hymn. And I think whenever that attack came on him, this is what he would have said. I think he would have said at that moment, yeah, that's right. That's who I was. That's what I did. And then he would have said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. That's his testimony. Oh, he was wretched. You and I, we were wretched. You and I, we were lost, we were broken, we were dead. 
But our testimony is what Christ has done in us, and it's a weapon. And when the enemy comes after you and you pull out the testimony, he's got no legs to stand on. He'll leave just as quickly as he can. So I want to encourage you, you have a testimony. A testimony of your salvation, but then you've got a number of testimonies. Mark Pittich has now got a testimony of how God can heal him in a moment. So the next time he prays for someone, he says, listen, before we even start, I'm going to tell you about a testimony, a weapon that's in my hands of what God did. Can I encourage you, hold on to your testimonies. Hold them close, hold them on the tip of your tongue and speak them. They'll overcome the enemy and they'll overcome your negativity and your doubts as well that you keep reminding yourself, God, you did this in me. I'm saved, I'm free and I can now live freely. Look what Peter says. In that whole dialogue, Peter says to them, he says, the Lord said, the spirit told me, an angel told me, I remembered the word of the Lord. What he's doing is saying, God said. Our testimony is that. It's God's word, and then God's word being brought into evidence. He says, look at what God said, and then look at what God did. And that's testimony. God speaks, and then he does. And that's what we carry in our life. And Peter does it. He brings it to them. He says, I need you to see what God is doing. This is he's doing. Because God said it, he's the one who did it. And then Peter says this. If God said it and God did it, how can I stand in the way? How can I stand in the way? Now, one thing we can see with Peter is just how much he's matured. Because he was a man of short, uh, a short fuse. I mean, he cut off a guy's ear trying to defend Jesus. But he once got very close standing in the way. When they're walking and Jesus says to his disciples, quite a personal moment, he says, I need to let you know they're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. I need you to know that, guys. And Peter, and I'm like, well done, Peter, for what you've just done. Peter's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, never. Never, never, never. We'll not let them arrest you. They won't touch you. They will not crucify you. And he must have been thinking, Jesus is going to give me a high five. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's what the other disciples said. Whoa. And Peter's like, what? But look what Jesus says. He says, Peter, that is your will. That's what you think is the right thing to do. You're standing in the way of God's will. But imagine if he did. Imagine Peter in his ignorance saying, God, Jesus, I'm going to stop God's will happening in your life because I think I know better. Peter's learned. He's learned the lesson. So he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. God's just said, the Spirit just told me, the angel just called. The Word of God has said, Peter takes a step back, says, God, I've learned my lesson. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And I'll just be obedient. Can I encourage you? Don't trust your will. Don't trust your wisdom. In fact, Psalm 127 says this. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And the more mature you get as a Christian, the more warning you have to carry this. Because you might think, I'm so wise as a Christian. Lord, I know every trick in the book. I know exactly what to say. God would say, well, I can't use you then. Because you're too wise for yourself. And apparently for me too. But actually keep asking God, what is your will in this moment? What is your will? What are you doing? What does your word say? And in obedience, let me see it happen. And that's all that Peter did. Peter sees that God's got this way bigger plan than what he knew, what he saw. And now even for the church, a far greater plan than what God has. Lastly, we just see that there's this miracle. There's a miracle that the critics are silenced and they celebrate. And 
The first part of the miracles, it says, and they were silenced. There was silence. I guess it can be a miracle that within a church there's just quietness. <laughs> but they were silent. And the second part of that miracle is that they, they, they then glorify God and they realize what, what God is actually doing. And they declare and say, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Church, I want to encourage us this morning from this story. It's a lovely story. It's lovely that it shows the truth. And I love the Bible does that. The Bible doesn't hold back punches. It reveals the worst of our heroes. So here's this church who've, who's just pronounced the gospel. Those in Jerusalem are worth applauding. But there was persecution in Jerusalem. They chose to stay. Others left and they said, well, we're going to stay in the city of persecution. Stephen's just been killed, but we'll stay. So we can't be too critical of them. But God says, I need to, I, I need to change something in your heart. And, um, and God does that. But for us as a church now, we need to know that we're in a season where the gospel needs to keep going out. To this suburb in Morning Hill, but then to all the little suburbs around us, to the city, we've got guys this morning in Belfort Park, we've got guys this morning in Bromfontein, we've got guys this morning in Jeppistown. Ken had a word this morning, like a word of warning in his heart, just there's a lot of upheaval in the city at the moment. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of anger and aggression. Our people are there. The sites are there, but the lost are there too. And we need to pray and just say, Lord, just keep, keep making your will be done, Lord. Use us. So I want to encourage you, church, pray this week. Say, Lord, is there any prejudice in me that I hold against sharing the gospel with any person? Is there any prejudice I hold towards me living in the fullness of salvation? And perhaps this morning, as a last closing point, if you, if you have not asked Jesus into your life, for whatever reason, but maybe this morning you've heard God's word and you said, I want that testimony of Jesus saving me. I would love to pray with you. So can I ask as a church, can we stand? Let's ask God just to lead us, to check our hearts, to lead us forward as a church. So can I ask that, if there's, is there anyone here this morning, and I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. I just want to see if it's worth praying for any of you this morning. If you're saying this morning, actually, I want to I ask Jesus into my life. The way Cornelius needed to hear about Jesus, the way Peter went and shared about Jesus. If that's you this morning, would you mind just putting up your hand? I just want to look around the room and see if there's anyone here this morning. You're saying, Jesus, I need you. I haven't accepted you before, but I see that I need you. Anybody here? All right, if there's anyone in the room and I don't see your hand, please come see me straight after this meeting. I'd love to just pray with you and just... Tell you about the way forward in this. But let's pray, church. Let's pray for us to be used by God, even when we might um, in, in our approach to the sea. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is so true and so strong and powerful that it, 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 it changes our hearts to love all people. Thank you, Lord, that we have a testimony this morning. All of us here have a testimony of your goodness, of your love, of your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that that's a weapon. Father, I pray for us as your church that you would keep maturing us, keep using us, keep growing us. But Lord, you've said the gospel's for the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles here in this room. We're all Gentiles. But Lord, we, we know there's a, a, a city, a nation and nations that you are longing to reach. Send us, Jesus, we pray. Send us, Lord, we pray. With your gospel, with our testimony, with what you've done, with power and authority, 
And may we see more and more men and women come to you. And when we do, Lord, may we respond like the church did at the end. May we celebrate and say, God is reaching all people, all people. Thank you, Lord, that that is your will. Amen.